Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our email newsletter, our smartphone app, or at the website SupChina.com. SupChina features original, independent, and uncensored reporting from and about China, covering everything from media policy to the Me Too movement, from the Belt and Road Initiative to the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in Xinjiang. We surely agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in lovely Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from fabled gold corn holler in the deep dark woods of Middle Tennessee is a man still infamous for laughing aloud when Bambi's mother died. <laughs> it's Jeremy Goldcorn. Just like that. That's how you did it. That's exactly how you laugh. Jeremy, greet the people. Yeah, ba- Bambi Biltong is good, you know, Bambi jerky. <laughs> anyway, um, hello, people. Okay, great. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Emily Fung, who for the past, gosh, how many years now? Has been three years? Has been a reporter for the Financial Times in Beijing, uh, but who will now be joining National Public Radio as their Beijing correspondent, or she has already joined. Uh, she's done some tough, very hard-hitting reporting, but also has a great reputation for her fairness. She recently won honorable mention in the prestigious Lewis Prize Awards for Outstanding Rule of Law Journalism. Happily, Emily is a graduate of Duke University here in Durham, and since she's been not too far away up in D.C. with NPR, she wanted to come down and visit her alma mater, so we seized the opportunity to have her here on Seneca in person. Emily, congratulations on the new gig. Kudos on the spectacularly good work that you've done over the years at the FT, and a very warm welcome to Seneca. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be in Durham. Yeah. Okay. Well, we figure it's a good practice for the radio work that you're going to be exactly. doing. Exactly. Yeah. All right. She's just opportunistically taking Cynic. This taking, is just training I'm, for yeah, me. Exactly. Training. <laughs> yeah. Cynic is very high standards. It's very good training. So, Emily, since this is your first time on Seneca, maybe we could talk a bit about your background. What took you to China and what led you to choose life as an ink-stained wretch? Because <laughs> um, I understand you were originally doing non-for-profit work supporting marginalized women in China uh, and stringing for the New York Times, if I remember rightly. Yes, that's what, well, the not-for-profit not stuff ended up being less what I had hoped for and became more educational consulting. Mm-hmm. But why don't we back up a little bit? Sure. I, I, um, my parents are Chinese. I came from Zhejiang province, but then I was born and raised in Connecticut. And I had grown up with a very vague idea of Chineseness and the fact that we had family back in mainland China. I would visit every four or five years, but I saw a very narrow part of the country, though you could see even in visits every four or five years to one third tier city in Zhejiang that that the country was going through a lot of big changes. The first time I went, it was bicycles. The second time I went, it was scooters. The third time I went, it was cars. And my relatives had moved apartments going from this like concrete Stalinist shack to a high-rise apartment within 10 years. So that was fascinating. And when I went to university, I decided that I spoke Chinese, but I was illiterate. And um, I ended up taking a couple of heritage classes. At the time, I was thinking about becoming a writer. I wanted to be either a novelist or a magazine feature writer. The news did not interest me. I didn't want to be tethered to a, a news deadline. And I thought, why don't I write stuff about real people, but in a literary way? And that's how I ended up getting pulled into China. I found this internship with Leap Magazine, which Philip Tanari, another Duke alum and one of the founding directors of the UCCA Museum in Beijing, uh, had founded and is still going. I loved that. That was my first introduction to Beijing. This was 
six or seven years ago, I want to say. I was a sophomore at Duke University, and I fell in love with the city. That's also when I met some of my first journalists who worked at newspapers and wires in Beijing. And I just thought to myself, these people are so cool. I can imagine working with them day in, day out. And at the same time, make this amazing diversity in the people they talk to, the things that they cover. They're learning something new every day. And it just seems so much more engaging than becoming, say, an academic, getting a PhD, studying the same thing for six or seven years, or even writing a book or a magazine piece, which would take a minimum of three, you know, three to six months. I just really loved the pace of journalism in China. So that's when I decided, I was about 19 at the time, I think, that I wanted to be a journalist rather than just a writer. I had not studied journalism. I wasn't part of the Duke student newspaper, but I started freelancing a little bit and right after graduation moved to Beijing. A friend of mine was starting this nonprofit. It sounded very exciting, but really it was a vector for me to get to China with some <laughs> money in my pocket, enough to pay for my airfare. And I've been there for almost four years now. Oh, wow. That's, that's great. Yeah, we all have to find our excuses to get there. I mean, you need a visa somehow, right? Um, so you were, you were born in the U.S., like you said. Um, you're part of this generation that Amy Chin once told me is called XYZs, as opposed to, to, to me and my kind who are ABCs, right? And XYZs because your names are all in pinyin with all the, the, the X's and the Q's, right? <laughs> and the Z's. In fact, I think you have a Z in your name. Right? My middle name. Your middle name is a Z. That's right. So, um, and, uh, my, my, my generation, we grew up in a time when, when China was still very expensive to get to, very inaccessible. I mean, I went, I had much longer intervals between my visits to China. So you had much more accessibility to China. Uh, tell me how you think that that uh, affected your your take as a journalist on China. Do you think that has had some impact on, on you, just having more more connectedness to it? I think most immediately it probably lends itself to an interest in things beyond politics and finance. I began my career at the Financial Times. It was my first full-time gig, and that was a wonderful training in the institutions of China. But my base of knowledge and what I cared about when I first came to China was how do people live? What do they think about in China? What are the changing ways in which their lifestyles are mirroring the, the, the greater macro changes that are happening in the country? And so I tried to infuse that in the reporting that I do. I think that lends itself really well to radio, actually, because the, those stories have to be human-oriented and centered. I also think that it makes – how to put this? It gives me a bigger impetus to examine every story I do in a more critical light because I know that not only do I have personal stakes in the country and I care about what they think of the reporting that I that I do. Um, what was wonderful about the Financial Times is they have a Chinese language website, which right. is for the most part uncensored, and uh, in the sense that you know people can can access it freely from the World Wide Web. And so a lot of the work I wrote could be read by Chinese people, including my relatives. So I care about what they think. I want them to be informed. I want them to think that it's fair. And I also want people to know that I don't take things and and um, just kind of report the news straight, but that we fact check every single thing that we do. So I think that not that other journalists in China don't have um, this critical eye, but there's a very personal motive for me to have that same objective lens to doing the reporting that I do. Well, I think it shows through. I think that that, that sense of a stake and the mm -hmm. empathy, it, it definitely is there in your, in your reporting. And that's what I think has made you such a well-regarded journalist. Thank you. Uh, Emily, a, a kind of a related question. Uh, recently, there's been quite a bit of discussion on Twitter and elsewhere about how the younger generation of China watchers, you know, whether journalists or academics, 
uh, or general Beijing and Shanghai hangar honors. Uh, they have the, the younger lot have a different perspective on China from what Kaiser and I think of as the middle generation, which is basically you know him and me, you know, arriving in very late eighties and nineties in China. Uh, and our perspective again is rather different from the older generation of really established folks. What is your take on the generational divide amongst China watchers, scholars, China journalists? In terms of the reporting that we do, the the personalities, the outlook on the country, all of the above, yeah, all of the above. Do does it result in different reporting? Do you have different attitudes? Uh, you know, is there a generational divide at all? I mean, maybe this is nonsense. One thing that's wonderful at the Beijing community is I think there's a lot of exchange. So I've been able to tap into some of the institutional knowledge of the Beijing hanger-ons that you mentioned.、Uh, <laughs> but I think I think that there was a lot more hope going into. The reporting that I did when I first began in China, and I know that that's true for a lot of the younger journalists in Beijing that were beginning around the same time. This could be all cyclical. I mean, China goes through these political cycles of tightening and then opening and then tightening. I was really lucky to get to Beijing at a time when things were still relatively open. I think 2015, when I moved there, it was just starting to get more difficult to work there as a journalist or in the nonprofit world. And I think if I had moved there now or even last year, I would not have been able to do to follow the same career trajectory that I did because it just would have been impossible to work without a journalist visa my first year. Yeah, that's in, right. In Beijing,、um, but I began with a lot of hope. I thought this is a country that's still growing. I remember the Olympics very well in 2008. I was actually in China at the time and watching the country go through. Um, this process of becoming more well known on the international stage, and so I went in with a lot of energy, thinking I'm going to be able to do all this great reporting about a people that is becoming more cosmopolitan, a country that's out that's reaching out to the rest of the world, and it's actually been very、uh, personally hard to watch that change over the last three years. Amen. I I know that people have been there for even longer, probably feel the same way, but it's particularly fresh for me and a number of other people who have only been in China for the last three or four years, and. For which this is like the first country we've reported in. So,、uh, Emily, I don't think that's a generational divide. I, I think that's just a fact of the the actual circumstances in China. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> yeah, I think the the general generational divide thing is over overstated. It's I, mean, I think that there's you know things that push it and pull it in different directions. I mean, on the one hand, I think a lot of the younger people like you, they they maybe lack. The the perspective of how much things have changed from in the eighties, but they make up for it by not being obsessed with you know、uh, events of the past that may not be as relevant to the minds of Chinese people today as they are in the minds of of the observers of China.、Uh, so it's a wash, and I think that my my take is that yeah, people tend to overstate the generational divide. Listen, you're about to make another big transition, which is from print to radio,、right. uh, and uh, working for NPR. You're going to be camped out here in the states for a while, up in DC. You've just finished training, right?、You、yes. Just emerged from training. Radio training. I'm curious, what do you what do you have to do differently? Do you have to write completely differently? I, I think we were chatting earlier. You said it's mostly about. A different approach to writing. What、yes. have you learned about? I、that? was terrified when I took this job that it would be incredibly technical. That was actually the the thing I was most intimidated about. And there is a lot of equipment, but it's actually quite intuitive to use. The biggest difference is just how you write for radio, how you engage with people both on tape, and how you write around all the tape that you collect. One thing I didn't realize was all those introductions that transition between each piece on the radio that the radio host, you know, someone like Stevens Keep, would use. 
to lay context for a piece that's not written by the host most of the time. It's written by the reporter who put together the feature that's going to go on air. And it makes sense because the introduction, it's usually two to five sentences. It gives context, but it's also a hook. It gives critical information, and it's considered part of the piece. Everything else that follows is structured depending on what you put into the intro. I find them incredibly difficult to write, and they're the thing that sets the tone for the entire piece. It's not quite a nut graph. It's not really a lead for the story. Mm -hmm. It's not really a summary of the story either. It's this weird, like, whatever you want to make of it. It's an art. And that's that's what radio is. It's just kind of having an ear for it and figuring out what elements can communicate the most information in a three or four-minute time period. What drew you to want to do radio instead of print? I love radio. So I I grew up listening not so much to radio, but to streaming and to podcasts. Right. That's the thing that really grabbed me into audio. And I uh, wanted to explore that medium more. I also just feel like it is a much more immediate way to do reporting about China. I think with print, because of the way everything is going to digital, there's more of a focus now on doing incremental coverage, up-to-date, by-the-minute rolling coverage on a breaking news item. And that can be exhausting. It's definitely crucial. And I'm glad that there are outlets that do that. But if you really want to do some sort of deep dive, a storytelling about a particular community or individual, that kind of anthropological reporting is really difficult to do. But I think radio is a natural way to do that. You can bring in soundscapes and things like that, which I, I absolutely love about Beijing. It's a city of tremendously interesting sounds. Uh, you're going to be joining some great people. You know, Frank Langfitt is a veteran from there. Anthony Kuhn, of course, is great. Uh, Rob Schmitz, of course, is still in Shanghai. I mean, some really great people who have who've served in in uh, in China for NPR. Yeah, big shoes to fill. Emily, you might uh, be camped out here in the United States for a while before your visa clears. I mean, I know NPR hasn't recently had problems particularly with visas, but you never know. Um, Anyway, do you have any China-related stories that you might be working on for NPR while you're here in the United States? Yeah, I don't I don't want to talk about them too much because they're still a work in progress and I also don't I don't want to publicly commit myself to delivering these stories or give away too much. <laughs> but it's been fascinating coming to DC and realizing that there's a very insular but highly influential cabal of policymakers, legislative aides, think tank experts who have become incredibly hawkish on China in the last few years. And you hear about it, it filters back to Beijing because you talk to these people over the phone, you read their analyses, but then to come and to meet with these people in person and hear the kind of public remarks they're giving has been really shocking. I didn't expect that the fervor of this bipolar, the US versus China would be at at this degree at this point. So so I'm eager to kind of parse that while I'm here. I'm looking at a number of technology-related stories coming out of D.C., and I'm also very, very interested in in the conversation that's happening now about Chinese students on American campuses, whether they're agents of Chinese espionage and academic uh, intellectual theft, whether Chinese students themselves feel incredibly vulnerable, whether these Chinese student associations are legitimate threats to American free speech and academic discourse. All of this stuff is highly contentious. I, I mean, we're at Duke University right now, my alma mater, and Duke has its fair share of student scandals every single year. I feel like there's always like two or three. A professor said this, an administrator did that, a student put up a poster saying this. This year, though, rather than having uh, conversations about uh, Me Too or Black Lives Matter, which I think really dominated discussions in the last two years, it's been about Chinese students, I think, mm-hmm. Chinese identity. I mean, there was that scandal a few months ago about the, the Duke University provost who said Chinese international students should speak more English rather than Chinese on campus. And that was kind of the defining scandal on on, on um, campus this year. Well, so we, I think- we know that it was a graduate student advisor 
Uh, we don't know that a, a pro. She says that somebody higher up in the department said said that. Okay, but we, a we Duke really University know. professor. Was, yeah, it was um, actually my colleague Jason and I. We spoke to the the group of students who were organizing the petition drive, and, and mm. we got a huge download on that. What was fascinating about that was just how divided the Chinese community was on that issue. Yeah. There were a lot of people who said, you know, be quiet, shut up, you know, don't don't make an issue of this. You know, they're kind of right. We should speak more English. I mean, it was. Fascinating. To, they showed us a lot of letters that their parents, parents of students at Duke, parents of students actually in that program had written. And unfortunately, the majority of them were just sort of urging them uh, not to mm. make a stink about that. It was fascinating. Chinese Americans have always been very politically quiet. Right? right. And I come from a Chinese American family. This is what has been taught to me. Don't stick your head up. But I think that with what's happening in the U.S.-China relationship, Chinese Americans are going to have to figure out what their stance is to partake more in political discussions happening on campuses at their local government level. And as journalists, I think that that's also an extra layer of things to be aware of when you're reporting. Is this going to have an unintended consequence on a group of people of which I am a part and have, yeah, yeah. you know, personal relationships? My family is Chinese American. It's something that's really, really fraught, and I haven't thought clearly through it. Right. This country doesn't have a great track record when it comes to uh, avoiding the temptation to racially profile based on some. I'll say know. that, yeah. Uh, you were, I guess, you probably arrived at Duke a few years after uh, one of the more infamous cases of that, which was this Chinese student named Grace Wong. Uh, in 2008, uh, in the wake of the Tibetan uprising in, in March of that year, mm-hmm. had signed a, a petition uh, of pro-Tibetan students and brought down a firestorm. That must have been uh, still being talked about when you arrived at Duke, yeah? That was a year or two, I think, before. No, it was a that while was ago, right. maybe. Yeah. I remember meeting Grace Wong and not realizing who she was oh, and then wow, figuring out wow. the backstory later. But yeah. it seems like that there's still, there is now an, an, an atmosphere of fear on Duke's campus, and I'm sure other top U.S. universities about Maybe we'll get you down China. here to do some stories, some Duke-related stories at your alma mater. I did bring my microphone just in case. Oh, good, good, good. Well, you can borrow <laughs> ours, too. I mean, you're always welcome. So so while you were at the FT, you did a, a, a lot of reporting on what I think we would probably agree is the most important story of our time, one of the worst human rights atrocities of recent years, at least in China, uh, the extra-legal internment of Uyghurs and Kazakhs uh, in, in so-called re-education camps uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, so let's talk about you know, your reporting on the issue, maybe give us a timeline of, of you know, when you were there, where you went, what stories you filed from each of, of the, the different uh, reporting trips that you took. Sure. My first personal introduction to Xinjiang was August of 2016. And this was months, a few, only a few months before I think things started taking a turn for the worse politically, policy-wise in the region. Mm. I had gone for a vacation. It was the best vacation I'd ever taken. Wow. I fell in love with the place. We went all the way from Arumchi to Kashgar to Tashkurgan, this town on the border of, of Pakistan, China and Pakistan. Yeah. It was just amazing. And it was wonderful talking to everyone from Mongolians to Kazakhs to Uyghurs. It was this place that was totally unfamiliar, yet had threads of Chinese-ness running through it, but very much was its own kind of self-contained Central Asian Muslim place. And so when I started hearing about these, at the time, I think Uyghurs were calling it the Black black Jails or the Black Gate in Uyghur, these detention centers that Mm -hmm. were popping up where they were being sent. I was horrified and curious. I pitched a couple of Belt and Road stories at the FT. This would have been the summer of 2017, so a year after my first trip to the region. 
And to FT's credit, they were like, great, just take a week off, travel the region, see what you get, and then come back and write some pieces on it. I didn't have to have a very concrete proposal. I ended up spending a week retracing the same vacation route that I'd taken. And it was this really shocking compare and contrast of just how things had changed in a year's time. And this was 2017. So it was actually not as severe as what you would see today. But it was it was shocking to me that Arumchi had already gotten much more quiet. Kashgar had become even more touristy. The infamous Mike and Max, these right. two Uyghur police handlers from the Public Security Bureau who speak amazing English, met me in Kashgar, and they had photos <laughs> of me traveling through Xinjiang. Uh, and I, I told them that I was leaving, and I had just taken a vacation there, and I wanted to see how the region had changed a year later. But it was very, very evident that that things were different. People then could still talk freely, though, about what was happening. So you would talk to people in taxis, in restaurants. I met up with a number of Uyghur friends, and we shared a meal together. And and, and they talked quite comfortably but fearfully about how their phones were being hacked, how people were going to jail because of content they'd shared that was vaguely Muslim from five or six years ago. There was this atmosphere of fear, but it was still relatively open. I could talk with people. Then I went again to um, I went to Hotan in Kashgar in October that year, 2017, and Hotan was just another level. I mean, yeah. it was it was a police state. There were tanks and cars on the streets. There were checkpoints, maybe like every three or four blocks within the city. It was incredibly segregated. I was spending most of my time with Han employees from a state-owned company that had a subsidiary out there. It was a very weird trip that I took. I couldn't believe that they let me do it. And they were outwardly extremely racist towards Uyghurs. And and that was shocking. I came back and um, just felt kind of sick to my stomach that that this was happening in China. And the last time I went back to to Xinjiang was June, late June of 2018. And at that point, it was... Already a Rimchi and a Kashgar were ghost towns. Yeah. I mean, you would go to a Even Rimchi in the Muslim quarter or the, the, the Uyghur quarter. And everything Urumqi. was papered up. So Very few come, people left. Yeah. Later, I mean, for, for quite a while, it looked like Rimchi was still, it was going to be spared the worst of this. But now it's, it's the same, right? I think that those who have been allowed to stay count themselves as lucky. But for the most part, it was completely abandoned. You could find Kazakhs and Hui Muslims still there. And they would talk about how their neighbors had been taken away or had gone back to their hometown, presumably because they'd been called back by local security forces, by their PSB, um, their Pai Chu Suo, to go to detention centers. So, I mean, we're not talking just, you know, 10% or 15% of the population then. We're talking a, a very, very significant, much higher percentage. Uh, I'm not just... sure about Arumji because so many of the Uyghurs living there had come from southern Xinjiang. I see, I see. But when you went to southern Xinjiang, particularly Kashgar, and the handful of people I could find who were still left and living in their own houses... They were saying to me they estimated 70 to 80% of their friends, family, and neighbors had been taken away. Wow. Emily, um, can you talk about your experience uh, reporting, you know, what is obviously a very difficult story to report? And your experience, I guess, in two senses. The one is, you know, were you detained, hassled? You know, how, how difficult was it to do the reporting you wanted to do? But the second part of the question is one that I also face. You know, I edit a daily newsletter, so I have no choice but to look at the news every day. And it can get pretty depressing. And because of the trade war, now I can't even avoid the horrible American political news. But usually, I mean, I'm you know, sitting here in Nashville. It's, it's kind of secondhand. Sometimes I get a punch to the gut, like Sub China this morning got a letter from a Uyghur asking for help. 
because uh, their family has disappeared and you know suddenly it's just very real but when you're doing the kind of reporting you did uh, you know you are seeing the effects of this every day I mean do you actually how do you deal with the the emotional toll well I agree that reporting on Xinjiang has become really difficult even in just the year and a half since I started doing more stories on the topic. At first, I I got the bulk of my reporting by just going to the region. Classic shoe strap, uh, classic... Um, shoe leather. Uh, shoe leather reporting, beating the streets, talking to people. Now it's impossible. And so the last year has been talking to Uyghur diaspora communities, activist groups, and scraping the web in Chinese state media for data. Uh, and you, there's been great reporting also based on satellite imagery. So I think that people are finding creative ways to get around the physical limitations of going to Xinjiang. My personal experiences of being there and reporting are probably a little exceptional in the sense that I've never been detained and I've never been heavily harassed. Mike and Max don't count. They were just, you know, they're to they, let they're you know there. we were watching. Exactly. <laughs> they say hi. They show me pictures knowing that they're still following me when I go to southern Xinjiang. But for the most part, I, I don't stay there for more than a, overnight, for more than a, a day or two. The last time I went to Xinjiang in June 2018, I was there for two days. It was really, really fast because I knew how bad things had gotten. And I didn't have any sign that anyone was following me. When I went to Hotan, there were people trailing me. I remember at one point I tried to go to a Bingtuan, which is this military outpost, a military town right outside of Kashgar. And an entire police convoy followed us for three hours and then escorted us back. Jeremy, I, maybe not everyone knows what the Bingtuan are. Can you give a quick uh, explainer? So when uh, the People's Liberation Army or the Communist Party in their vocabulary, liberated uh, Xinjiang in other people's vocabulary, you know, recolonized it or uh, basically took it over uh, in the years immediately after 1949. The main force to do this was the Bingtuan, which was basically a, uh, I, I don't know if division is the correct word uh, of the PLA, uh, that set up farms and basically put together the transport infrastructure and the agricultural infrastructure that uh, is uh, has made Xinjiang uh, economically what it is today. And then, of course, there's the energy, there's oil. Right, right. And these are still there, I mean, from the 1950s, now 60 years later, 70 years I mean, later. They, they still basically run Xinjiang, don't they, Emily? Yes, they're the very Kong. much there. Yeah. The story that I was reporting at the time was just how they were driving urbanization. Entire cities mm-hmm. were popping up around these Bingtuan. They weren't just state-owned farms anymore or military outposts. These were residential communities in the middle of the desert. With still a Bingtuan core, right? Yes, of course. These right, are paramilitary right, right, right. forces. But for the most part, because I... I'm ethnically Chinese. I'm a young Chinese woman. I dress up like a tourist when I go. I think that I've been able to fly under the radar. And perhaps because I don't have much experience reporting in China, I don't have a very long long back file in whatever PSB Ah. office there is in Xinjiang or Beijing. And and maybe I'm not as high profile of a target, though I haven't tested that in the last half year. That's interesting because, you know, a lot of the perceptions that I've had are, are that people who look like you, people who are ethnically Chinese or recognizably ethnically Chinese, actually have it worse, not just in Xinjiang, but in a lot of, of, of reporting in China. There's a little more scrutiny. There's this expectation that, you know, you're going, you know, unlike those Chun Lawai, you're going to at least, you know, understand the Chinese perspective. And there's more of this sense that you're a traitor if you write hard-hitting stories. Right. Uh, 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 that hasn't been your experience so far. I think if I had been confronted... I may have had a harder time. I, I've never been detained. I'm lucky, but I, I 
worry that the the consequences of actually being caught might be higher because I'm ethnically Chinese and I have relatives in mainland China, but the probability of getting caught is lower just because I blend in better. Um, can we get back to the question about dealing with the sort of emotional uh, trauma of yeah. this kind of reporting, if it's okay to ask you Oh, that. yeah, I totally forgot about that. So because it's so difficult now to go to Xinjiang, I communicate mostly over things like um, encrypted chat apps with people who are living in Turkey, Kazakhstan, the U.S. And um, that's how I follow what's going on in Xinjiang, what's happening to their family members. But it's really exhausting because these people, to their credit, are incredibly effective at advocacy. They're relentless. I get messages every single day from individuals, from group chats, from activist organizations about their agenda, people they know who are in imminent danger. Every single, every other day, there's an emergency about someone who's stranded at an airport and is about to be deported back to China, or a family member who they haven't heard back from in two weeks and they're getting worried and they want me to maybe call their Chinese number to figure out what's going on or just show the PSB who's monitoring the call likely that someone from the outside still cares about this case. So it's really a 24-7 job. And I do my best to filter out the um, the noise. But at the same time, you feel this just kind of human responsibility to respond to every single message because this isn't a trivial favor. This is some, a request that's really important to a person, a real live person out there. Wow. Emily, um, what about reactions to your stories from Chinese readers? Uh, FT Chinese isn't blocked, but do your stories on things like Xinjiang get translated and show up there? I'm actually not sure. Oh, it'd be interesting to find out. They, I've never been asked about. I should check that. Yeah. They, they will selectively choose and translate pieces of mine. And they have chosen really sensitive stories in the past to publish. For example, uh, like an obituary that I reported about Liu Xiaobo, who died wow. two years ago. They translated and put on their web. It was taken down. I mean, it was blocked, that particular story. The rest of the website wasn't blocked, though. They may have done the same to, to my Xinjiang stories. But I haven't gotten immediate feedback from, from Chinese readers. I do notice a lot of troll comments in English on my English language stories for the Financial Times and Xinjiang. Oftentimes, like a good half of the comments clearly are like agitators types, who are yeah. there just to provoke discussion and debate. Right, that's that's right, a generous right. term. Yeah, Jiang Fan, our friend uh, who writes for The New Yorker, um, half her Twitter posts are about how beleaguered she is by people who regard her as some sort of a race trader. For uh, it's yeah, it's really deeply depressing. Um, in spite of the difficulty of reporting on Xinjiang, you have managed to come up with some very good angles and broken some important stories, like the fact that there is now forced labor happening in at least some of the camps, uh, that actual factories making things like shoes are are being built or have already been built. Uh, so let's start with that one. Um, how did you learn about the forced labor that was going on? Was that through your, your sources abroad? Yes. And also, to be fair, there were a number of other news outlets that were chasing because Chinese state media, bizarrely, in their tone-deaf way, had actually begun broadcasting segments within re-education, these detention facilities, about people happily working in these workshops, which I thought was weird. But oh, this is this is a regime, let's remember, that brought in reporters <laughs> for a, and then exposed them to that horrifying tableau of Uyghurs singing, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. I don't, oh, my God, that that haunts me. Ugh. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, so there there were already CCTV segments about people working, but what was unclear was what is the nature of the work they're doing and 
is this compensated? Is this voluntary? Most likely not. But as a reporter, it was my job to figure out whether or not people were doing this voluntarily. And um, I spent about a month looking through state media sources and talking to diaspora communities, refugee communities, mostly in Kazakhstan because of its proximity to China about their relatives and messages that they were able to get across the border about their relatives being forced to work as slaves in these forced labor facilities. You went out to Almaty and to other Kazakh cities at all? No, no? so I, I did not actually physically go. I think that this is another um, interesting thing about Xinjiang reporting is so much, so much of it is now digital. Right. And it was mostly through phone calls, WhatsApp calls, voice messages. There were these weird instances in which I was speaking to a Kazakh person who didn't want to speak Chinese to me and certainly didn't speak English. And so we would do these like three-way voice memos (laughs) at times when I couldn't find a reliable 24-7 translator. Someone would send me a voice memo. I would send it on to a Kazakh friend who would then interpret and send me back an MP3 file. And we would do this over the course of two weeks to translate an entire, say, three-hour conversation. Wow. So I never went to Almaty, but um, I did end up talking to a number, um, I think it was six people for the first piece, about relatives who were forced to work. Emily, you've also written about the fate of children whose parents are being interred. Tell us how you reported that out and what you learned about China's own family separation atrocity. That's been one of the most difficult stories that I reported, not only because it was emotionally hard, but it just took so long. To this date, I still haven't been able to find and go to one of these actual state-run orphanages where where children have been interred. But I got into the story because about a year and a half ago, I was at this lunch. This is a bit roundabout, so you can edit this if you want to. But a year and a half ago, I was at this very fancy lunch in Beijing CBD, and this philanthropist was telling me about how he had visited this winery with an orphanage in the back that was mostly inhabited by Xinjiang children, Uyghurs. And they had been trained to sing, to dance. It was this performance academy, and it was being sponsored uh, by the uh, Swarovski Family Foundation. The the Crystal. The Crystal, the Austrian Swarovski Family. Wow. And I was like... Was this this winery in Xinjiang, or was it... This winery is in Hebei province. In Hebei, okay. And if you go, and I ended up going, there is a cluster of Baroque wineries out there. Um, mostly owned by Chinese, but invested by Germans, Austrians, French. I don't think many of them are up and running. It wasn't a great business proposition. <laughs> but I went because I wanted to follow up on this tip, and I wanted to figure out what, who were these, these, these Uyghur children. I had already th- started thinking to myself, if so many Uyghur adults are being detained, then the What's children yeah. must be going somewhere too, because I've heard of no firsthand accounts of children being inside these detention facilities. I went to the winery. It was kind of abandoned. Like I, Their wine is not very good. I ended up buying a few bottles. <laughs> uh, they had a couple of Han Chinese people who were planting grapes. But in the back was this deserted orphanage. It was unlocked. I went inside. I ended up finding very creepily the undertake, the the manager for this building who had been living there for the last 10 years. And he remembered these children. They had actually left. And after the school was closed down, I think they ran out of funding. I never was able to find these children. But the building manager told me that these Uyghur children, um, at the time, they were six or seven. At this point, they're probably in their early 20s now. Wow. So this is a while ago. This is like after the 2009 thing, maybe. These Uyghur children were mostly 
the children of executed criminals back uh. in Xinjiang, probably for drug-related offenses. But a number of these so-called criminals had been executed for terrorism-related charges, and they were afraid that these children would become radicalized if they stayed with their relatives in Xinjiang. And so they were dispersed across the country to both state-run and privately funded orphanages like this one for caretaking and for some sort of vocational education. I just thought that was the weirdest thing. I ended up tracking down a number of Uyghurs who were looking desperately for their children. Some of them had gotten phone calls from security officials in Xinjiang or family members that had just spoken to security officials who informed them that their children had been taken to state-run orphanages, both in Xinjiang but also across China. And um, I ended up talking mostly, uh, I ended up talking a lot to um, to hear Amin who at this point has become a very well-spoken and outspoken Uyghur activist based in D.C. um, and who has been really, really informative and helpful in helping us understand what's going on in the region. He himself is still looking for his his young daughter, who he hasn't seen in two years. Wow. It's tragic. Uh Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So so now what do we say? I want to focus now on another topic, um, and that's the topic of technology. You know, as anyone who has been paying attention at all knows, that it's very much at the heart of U.S.-China tensions. But there's a very strong Xinjiang dimension to all of this as well. Uh, this is an area that you again did some some really interesting and pioneering work about the intertwined nature of our supply chains and how difficult it is to actually enforce things like export controls. Uh, you looked at a company in particular called Hikvision. Uh, which is a Cayman Islands company, but it operates both in China and the United States and is, mm-hmm. I think, the world's largest supplier of advanced surve- surveillance At cameras. least the first or the second largest okay, in terms it's of one market of the, share. One of the top ones. So um, tell us a little bit about that company, um, about the large number of U.S. companies who are supplying component technology to Hikvision, uh, and, and tell us maybe how they're getting around existing laws that presumably would prevent the export of these technologies directly for use in the camps in Xinjiang. So Hikvision is this company that is everywhere in China, but I first encountered them in Xinjiang. They make a lot of the security uh, security cameras, the networking equipment that goes into surveilling mosques, homes, office spaces in the region. And now, worryingly, you see them everywhere in Beijing and big cities too because of these um, CCTV cameras that are going up everywhere. They also have a big market presence in places like Europe and South America and up to a few years, up until last year, I think, the US, but a great Wall Street Journal series on Hikvision on how government uh, facilities were also using Hikvision cameras. <laughs> I put a stop, I think, put a, put a kibosh to that. But um, what interested me was that a lot of the high-tech components, things like the microprocessors, you know, the semiconductors that mm-hmm. went into these cameras, some of these cameras are adapt, uh, are equipped with like AI, facial recognition capacities, all of that really cutting-edge stuff that sets Hikvision apart and makes it competitive globally come from American suppliers, people like um, companies like Intel, NVIDIA, and their various subsidiaries. None of the stuff is controlled by export controls, though. Okay. So if you look at these components, they're really they're high tech, but they're not so powerful that they can have military applications or national security applications. And so every single component, and I've checked this in the Export Control Act, is um, is okay to export to other countries, including China. Um, hmm. Some of these are very. Some of these are not even as high-tech as a semiconductor. For example, Seagate, which is um, an American domiciled company that makes memory storage, like yeah, hard yeah. drives. And, you know, I used to have a Seagate backup disk. Sure, I still do. <laughs> they make um, 
custom storage options for really powerful camera networks in China. Um, they actually partnered with Hikvision to make a custom design solution to store all of the hours of footage of happy Uyghurs yeah, singing in detention facilities. Yeah, lot of, yeah, lot, lots. There are only a handful of companies out there that can make the type of commercially competitive semiconductors, components, memory hard drives that go into the electronics we use every day, including the type of surveillance technology that China uses. So that gives American companies a huge amount of power in saying, this is who we will sell to and this is who we will not. But they're understandably reluctant in making that distinction and making what they see as political decisions because their focus is the bottom line. Now, when I wrote that story, within a few days, I had gotten a ping from a, a major public relations firm uh -huh. about, could I speak off the record with them? Because they had a number of American semiconductor company clients that were worried about their exposure to the Xinjiang market and were worried that that would backfire on them. So they had they wanted to test the waters about whether they should be really worried right. um, because of how many sales they had in, in Xinjiang. No, I mean, I don't blame them, yeah. And do you think companies, you know, like NVIDIA and Intel, I mean, are they actually going to feel the same pinch as Hikvision? especially if there are more stringent export controls, or at the moment is it still just a fear? Because like Hikvision has dropped like, like precipitously right there. Their stock price went, well, after your story came out, <laughs> it dropped pretty... I don't know if my story caused that, but I think the U.S.-China trade war certainly had an impact uh, on that because there were worries that they couldn't buy the components they could uh, from see, the U.S., not so much that they were ethically implicated in a human rights crisis. I think that right now it's still this vague fear, but it's not going to translate into direct action. Um, it's it's possible that with proposals to strengthen the U.S. Export Control Act that might come into might become concrete legislation proposed to U.S. Congress at the end of this year, maybe 2020, that that might have serious consequences for American companies. But I don't think that it's a priority right now. There's also, I think, a little bit of discussion around the Global Magnitsky Act about whether you could sanction not just individuals with ties to a human rights tragedy like Xinjiang, but companies well, as well. Well, companies are people, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. There's definitely a lot of legal precedent to argue right, that they're right. culpable as well. But I don't see that the focus right now on export controls about limiting U.S. technology to China is not so much on their end use, whether China will use them to perpetrate human rights tragedies, but whether or not they're going to use this technology and become better at, at this technology than us. So I, I, just, I just don't see that, that crystallizing into any kind of action against these companies. There are other technologies of surveillance that you've been talking about, uh, like biometrics, and then a software that people in Xinjiang are obliged, I, I imagine it's just the Uyghurs, maybe the Han also, but who are obliged to download uh, that supposedly identifies forbidden digital content uh, that would be indicative of the Islamist extremist beliefs or whatever, the so-called, what are they called, 913 violations, right? Yeah. Can you explain about that? It, it seems like mobile surveillance is a long-running thing. I mean, you can go on things like Zhuhu or Weibo, these Chinese social media platforms, and find posts from people who have been called in for minor infractions, mm -hmm. had to bring in their devices, this has been like four or five years ago, and then came back home and realized that there had been malware implanted on their devices. Wow. I've had a friend who actually this happened to. She was called in and realized that her camera's SD card had been left with a malware oh, <laughs> virus wow. that was scraping data and sending it to a police server um, after she came back home. But 
now it's being implemented on a much wider scale in Xinjiang. When I first went there for reporting in August 2017, a friend of mine actually gave me a QR code where I could download a mobile <laughs> surveillance program. <laughs> I had I sent that to a uh, software engineer in Hong Kong who reverse engineered it for me, and he found out that what it does is it targets about 10,000 items of content. Uh, depending on like what the pixels are, what the text wow. is in the piece, and then if it if something on your phone matches that, it will send your phone's IP, its identity, to a police server in Xinjiang. But worryingly, one of the servers that this app was sending data to, one of the servers was owned by Sina uh, Weibo, which is a big oh my gosh. Chinese social media network listed in the United listed States, listed in the U.S. on the Nasdaq. So this seems to suggest that that private companies are also helping channel data to public security forces. I also know that there is a type of this surveillance software that people had to download onto their hard drives, particularly, or not hard drives, onto their desktop computers, mm -hmm. not just their phones, particularly if they worked for a government body or a university. And um, I, had a, I had a number of friends who were academics, graduate students in Xinjiang at the time, who had professors who were studying Islamic culture, Uyghur texts, and even just something as as harmless as architecture. But they had keywords in their files that would match these phrases that were forbidden, and they would get flagged and have to go to the police station and be detained for several hours until they could have someone who would vouch for their political um, reliability. reliability to wow. come pick them up. So clearly people are being held liable for stuff that they're that they're sending. I've also I had friends who said that they've had relatives who were called in for questioning because of content that they sent five or six years ago on their cell phones or posted onto their WeChats years ago, but had deleted or forgotten about. And the type of hardware and software that Chinese, quote, digital forensics companies now sell to police stations, not just in China, but around the world, are apparently able to crack that kind of... Um, to scrape that kind of data off of a phone or a or a laptop. That's wow, disturbing. Um, Emily, when you talk to people at companies like, say, MegV, which supply sophisticated facial recognition software or some other mm -hmm. technical apparatus of the surveillance state, do they have any? Do they have a sense for the uses to which the technology is being put? Do any of them have any moral qualms about it at all? No, I get the sense that they're really excited to be able to help procure these government contracts, which themselves are a very lucrative source of revenue. I I know that that FaceTime and Face++, Plus Plus, mm -hmm. MegV, right. I mean, they supply everything from uh, facial recognition technology to checkpoints across Xinjiang, but also mobile plug-in devices that police can use to scan faces on any street corner. Just using a smartphone. Using their smartphone or using a computer. And they were quite happy to tell me this, which implies to me that this is uh, not like an ethical concern of theirs. If wow. anything, I can imagine that this is a stamp of approval from regulators and from the powers that be that shows that this company is in the political and regulatory good graces in China. And this so this behavior is rewarded. Yeah. It's not punished in any way. And they're not getting that kind of feedback from the international community yet. Well, hopefully that will change. Hopefully that will. 
we did a live show with Sam Sachs just the other night uh, in New York, and Sam and I talked about China's push for indigenous innovation. You've written a lot recently about the obvious vulnerabilities of China's tech ecosystem, about certain advanced semiconductors that China is not yet producing, uh, but more importantly, the company that makes the most advanced, uh, what's it called, photolithography machines. Uh, this company that's based in the Netherlands, I believe, that, that can actually etch designs onto silicon at seven nanometer, like which is, you know, the most advanced in the world. And, and uh, from your reporting, is is your sense that China is going to be able to bridge that gap, uh, or or that it's still going to be sort of at the mercy? You know, that that vulnerability was very much laid bare with the whole. Uh, ZTE punitive decision that Trump then rescinded, but China seems to have a real sense of urgency about bridging yes. these gaps now. Semiconductors are this perfect storm because they are something that the U.S. and to some extent Japan and European countries have an unrivaled dominance in. And so if you wanted to put export controls to protect a certain sector of technology, one of the only sectors in which that might have a chance of working would be semiconductors. One of the pieces that I wrote, as you mentioned, is about how the companies that make the equipment to make the semiconductor chips are exclusively located in California, Massachusetts, Japan, and the Netherlands. And one way in which they're the fact that they're a bottleneck became painfully apparent was in the Micron and Fujian right. Xinhua case. So Micron is a U.S. semiconductor um, fabless design company. They designed these semiconductor chips. They had been working with a Taiwanese manufacturer who also was partnering with Fujian Xinhua, this state-run memory chip maker that wanted to build a top-notch factory within China. Uh, the Fujian Jinghua factory was accused of stealing technology from the U.S. company Micron. And um, this Chinese factory is now basically shuttered because it right. can't get equipment from the U.S. and the Netherlands into China to start production at a commercial scale. So it shows the, the power that the U.S. has in limiting technology flows to China. But the question is, how long will that dominance last? Seven nanometers right now is the industry golden standard for the most advanced microprocessors. People estimate that that's about 10 generations ahead of what Chinese equipment makers can make. Wow. Equipment makers like that's SNCC. That's quite a lead. That translates into like 15 or 20 years of yeah. research time. So that buys the U.S. some time, but China will catch up. It's a question of when, but it's also a question of when they catch up, will that technology still be... Um, will that technology still be relevant? Will that still be the cutting edge technology in 15, 20 years? And, and will DC be able to enforce export controls from the Netherlands or from Japan? Right, exactly. Will, will they fall in line? It's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Though it seems like Huawei is almost a test case right now for that. And the reason why Huawei is now such a sensitive case is because they have an in-house chip subsidiary, High Silicon, right. which is seen as one of the best hopes of China to put forth its own candidate on the likes of, you know, Intel, Micron, ASML, et cetera. ASML is that Dutch company. I couldn't remember. Yes. That's, that's right. Emily, I bought a, a DJI drone uh, about a year and a half ago, and I've been raving about it and having a lot of fun with it. Let me interrupt you. I, you know what, Jeremy? Actually, he sold Bitcoin to buy that drone, which was the most 2018 thing anyone ever did. <laughs> yep, and I sold Bitcoin before it uh, went bust, so or before it went completely bust. But anyway... Um, 
So drones are now going to be weaponized, Emily. Tell us as succinctly as you can what we have to worry about from China's advancements in drone technology. I, I, I had a lot of fun writing this really whimsical piece about drone swarming, mm-hmm. which if you can combine all of your worst fears about AI and drones buzzing above you and combine the two, these are big clouds of drones or even like boats that are controlled by AI operated remotely that can execute defense mechanisms or even attacks on critical infrastructure. And China's working on this. So is the U.S. They're doing this for airborne UAVs, but also for amphibious vehicles um, that can swim underwater or patrol boats that could sail in the South China Sea. And this is seen as kind of the next front of warfare. Um, that you don't have to send people out. You don't even necessarily have to send um, jet pilots or um, or um, ships out, but you can just send these like s- crowds of, of robot defenders on your behalf. Wow. Uh, so explain to me what the these these is this sort of, sort of like a being attacked rather than like by a bear being attacked by a swarm of bees. Kind of, it's a, yeah, exactly. You okay. can't take all of them out at once. Right, at right, best, right. you can like swipe a few, but then there are more to take their place. Right. And because they swarm based on artificial intelligence, they uh, are able to respond to whatever defense mechanisms you have and reform in new formations to right. attack they're your ad- game. They're adaptable. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm remembering right. there was a colleague of mine at Baidu in the United States, an American guy. He used to work very closely with Andrew Eng. Uh, who was actually a pioneer in that very... I'm suddenly remembering watching these videos, him controlling eight drones at the same time, being able to you know, like turn them all over, to have them all fly through narrow defiles in coordinated patterns, all AI-driven. So, uh, <laughs> okay, I, I have a mental picture of this now, and it is disturbing indeed. Oh, wow. There's so many other stories that we'd love to talk about that you've, you've done. Uh, we are incredibly looking forward to what you do for NPR because, I mean, I think as the listeners have just heard, you have a terrific talent for, for uh, telling stories uh, with your voice. So, uh, Emily, it's been just an enormous pleasure to have you on the show. You are an inspiration, I think, to a lot of aspiring China journalists uh, or other foreign correspondents. So before we let you go, I do uh, want to get some recommendations from the both of you. But before we do that, I have to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like what we're doing, the best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina Access, which gets you all sorts of goodies like the full daily newsletter, like discounts to our events, or even free attendance at our live shows, which we do once a month in New York, Uh, the chance to harangue our editorial team on our Slack channel. We've had some terrific uh, guests on the Slack channel. Come check it out. We had Christian Shepard the other day, which was just wonderful. I also want to make sure that everyone subscribes to the latest member of the Seneca Network, the Middle Earth podcast about China's culture industry. Uh, Check it out. You're definitely going to love it. A recent episode features Emily's new colleague, Anthony Kuhn, who I had the pleasure of hanging out with in uh, in Florida or in this balmy island off the southwest coast of Florida very recently. Uh, so on to recommendations. Jeremy, start us off. What do you have for us this week? Okay, I have a podcast called Sticky Notes. It's about classical music. Oh, wow. Um, 
And I, in fact, found it... Uh, I've been listening to a lot of classical music recently for various reasons, but it, it was, in fact, Melissa Chan, former Be- Beijing-based correspondent for Al Jazeera, who mm-hmm. recommended it on Twitter. Sticky Notes, a conductor named Joshua Weilerstein, and I've just uh, listened to the first two episodes, and it's really accessible and fun to listen to, introduction to classical music. Do you have a favorite uh, composer yet, Jeremy? I, I mean, Fate, my wife, you know, is a composer, so... Um, well, besides her. Wu, Wu Fei is my favorite, favorite, favorite composer. But uh, partly under her influence, I think it's been Shostakovich for a while. Oh, and that's also, you. in fact, the first um, uh, podcast in, in, in the Sticky Notes. The first episode is about Shostakovich, so it's all good. I, I've come to realize I basically like everyone with a vaguely Slavic name who was composing between 1860 and 1930. Um, you, yeah, it's difficult to go wrong with that uh, right, that, that uh, demographic. Exactly. <laughs> Some Germans too. Mahler, let's throw Mahler in there. Later Brahms. Uh, great, great. Emily, what do you have for us? I have a TV show that All I've right. been obsessed with. It's called Shit's Creek. Oh, I love that show. It is the best thing to come out of Canada. Oh my in a while. god, it's great. It's so funny. And it's universal. It's Eugene Levy. Exactly. It's a story about a dysfunctional family who fall from grace after their fortune is embezzled and have to make their lives over again in this tiny, tiny Canadian town. And it's amazing. So you're like the only other person I've ever oh, uh, and my friend Catherine. Uh, we have a tiny little Schitt's Creek fan club. I, I love that show. I think it's so funny. So many people I've tried to get to watch it just don't appreciate it somehow. It's really I'm shocked. I, I can't understand it. I think it's hysterical. The daughter is just... <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's it's a great show. I have a show too. Um, oh, is that on Netflix? Yeah, it's on Netflix. It right? is. The first yeah. four seasons yeah, are. Okay. So mine is um, is another Netflix show, but this is everyone's already seen this. It's Russian Doll. Have you seen this? So um, it's it's a super dark comedy. I highly recommend setting aside a whole evening and just binging it in one go. It's only eight episodes or something like that, and they're only half an hour. So It's a bit Dostoyevsky in the sense that if you do binge it, you will start to feel crazy by the end because right. it's a repetitive Groundhog Day show. Exactly. It's Groundhog Day, but way darker and, and also way f- – it's, it's, it's equally funny. And, you know, there's it's it's redemptive and all that stuff too, but it's, it's just terrific. Um, I think the protagonist is just one of the best comic talents to come along in, in a long time. She's just amazing. Russian Doll on Netflix. Check it out. Emily, once again, thank you so much for making the time uh, to, to uh, come in and, and, and sit thank with us. Thank you for having chat. me. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and best of luck in your new gig. Jeremy, man, thanks. Uh, yeah. Great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Emily. Thank you, Kaiser. Bye, Jeremy. Bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help from Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Session Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, New Voices, China Econ Talk, Talk for Talk, and the brand new Middle Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.